Amen. Could you please turn with me to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, chapter 3 of Hebrews. We're reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, if you have to use your smartphone and you have a choice. So we are in Hebrews chapter 3. And if you know what's up, you're like, oh no, one of those warning passages in, uh, in Hebrews. A lot of people struggle with the book of Hebrews because there's a number of uh, warnings uh, in this book. And uh, the people are not sure what's going on with them. And so here we are, we have one, um, and I view it as encouraging. Um, next week... Okay, I said I was going to do this last week. Um, once again, I was confronted with just how much content there is in the book of Hebrews. Um, next week, I'm going to do a whole message on, uh, the plan is, on salvation in the Old Testament. The whole thing. Okay? And that's from the start of chapter 4. Uh, preach grace to us as to them. Uh, so we'll use that. How is the grace functioning in the Old Testament? How does that possibly work? So we'll look at that, and uh, we'll also touch on that uh, question that a lot of people have had. Was, well, how is the Holy Spirit functioning in the Old Testament? We come here today to chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. I, I know this is somewhat of a record uh, for me this, this year, but we're going to do all those verses. And uh, this is an extended encouragement to the people uh, these predominantly Hebrew Christians, to continue trusting in Jesus and not abandon Him. Here's the question, really. Have you ever considered giving up in the Christian life? Just walking away completely. Have you ever considered that? Because I'm going to say right now, I have. I have. Some heads are nodding. This is a warning passage, but I would argue its purpose is primarily to encourage forward. And this is for us individually and us corporately, and it's a push for us to encourage us onwards in Jesus Christ and to not give up on Him in any way, shape, or form. Right? Let's hear these much-needed words for us this morning. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin 
For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So, this quote that we have here in verses 7 to 11 of Hebrews chapter 3, okay, it's found in verses 7 to 11, it's found in verse 15, it's quoted multiple times even in chapter 4. It comes from Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. So what that tells us, is that the writer of Hebrews, he was a preacher himself, no doubt, says the same things many times. Um, and this writer of Hebrews is essentially giving a sermon to these people on Psalm 95 to encourage these Hebrews Christians to not harden their hearts and to keep trusting in Jesus rather than going back to the old covenant Judaism that they came from. And coming up in the book of Hebrews, he's actually going to say to them, you can't go back because the old covenant is now obsolete because Jesus has come. You can't go back to your former religion of Judaism with the temple and the sacrifices and the feasts and that. You can't go back to it. It doesn't exist anymore because we have now Christ. We have the thing that those things were pointing towards. The language we have is that pointed in types and shadows ahead. And Christ is the true article. You can't go back. It doesn't exist. I'd like to bring three things out of this passage um, to, to break it up for us. Firstly, in verse 7, it's the need to hear the Word of God. Secondly, Basically, the, the beginning and end of the passage is to see the threat of unbelief as real. We must see it as real. And then thirdly, which is in verses 12 to 14, is to take care that unbelief does not grow around us. There's a corporate and an individual responsibility for the church. The individual Christian has responsibilities. The church as a whole has a responsibility to deal with and be on guard against unbelief. Let's start there with uh, verse 7. The need to hear the word. Do you notice how verse 7 starts? Therefore, which is pointing back to the previous few verses, it says, as the Holy Spirit says. Wow. Wow. Now, Psalm 95 is quoted and being expounded upon all the way through here into chapter 4. And in chapter 4, verse 7, 
it says, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted. It tells us something. Psalm 95 is written by David, King David. This tells us that. And it's also written by the Holy Spirit. And so he's bringing in David. He's bringing in Moses. He's bringing in the Holy Spirit of God to encourage the people to stick with Jesus. And now, this passage, the main purpose of this passage is not ultimately to talk about how we got the Bible. But this is a very good opportunity for us to to look at that. It does reveal something about wonderful about how we get the Word of God, and specifically the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God, literally in the Greek, breathed out by God. Who wrote this? It says the Holy Spirit, and it says David. How does that work? The Chicago statement of biblical inerrancy um, is, a, I think, a wonderful doc- document that kind of uh, speaks to how Scripture was inspired. And I want to read a couple of articles out of it, uh, and I commend the, the document uh, to you. How is it that man and the Holy Spirit wrote uh, the Bible together? Article 7 says, We affirm that inspiration was the work in which God, by His Spirit, through human writers, gave us His Word. The origin of Scripture is divine. The mode of divine inspiration remains largely a mystery to us. We deny that inspiration can be reduced to human insight or to heightened states of consciousness of any kind. Okay? So that's part of the relationship. And there's a mysterious element to it. Then in Article 8 it says, We affirm that God in His work of inspiration utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom He had chosen and prepared. We deny that God in causing these writers to use the very words that He chose overrode their personality. End quote. So why does Hebrews and John's Gospel and uh, Mark's Gospel and Deuteronomy and 1 Samuel, why do they all read differently? I mean, if you've read Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel, you realize how utterly different they are and the writing style is completely different. That explains it. There was research done. There was um, There were distinctive personalities, and God, working through His Holy Spirit, gave us the text of Scripture. And one of the reasons we believe it is validated that the Word of God is because Scripture is coherent. It fits together as one story from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, and it is without error. This is what we believe about the Bible. And we must hold to it. And therefore... We ask the question, who wrote Psalm 95, which is being quoted here in Hebrews chapter 3? David, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, making this God's word to us. God is speaking to this audience, these Hebrews Christians. He says, as the Holy Spirit says, listen. 
And because God was speaking, so he speaks to us. Notice also in verse 7, it says, As the Holy Spirit says. It's a present tense. It's not saying as the Holy Spirit said. It's as the Holy Spirit says. Present. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. God is speaking to you right now. Not a dead letter at all, but the living Word of God that the Spirit uses to impress upon our heart, to convict us, to encourage us, to build us up, to point us to Christ, and point us away from ourselves. This is the Word of the living God, and therefore, we must say that idols and anything created that we attempted to worship do not speak the words of life. Paul's point repeatedly in the book of Acts. Idols don't speak the words of life. The living God speaks through sacred scripture and therefore we must listen. And this is why I endeavor over and over and I make sure that whoever uses this pulpit and preaches from here, okay, is not just giving 12 rules for life or or three steps to this. It's for God. I have to be very interested in what you have to say to listen to you for 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 40 minutes. But if it's the Word of God that's being proclaimed, then we must listen because it has a divine author. God is speaking. And this is the reason why we read and we preach the Bible, because we want the living God to speak to us through His Word. So this is the exhortation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. That's what he's saying to us, to you today. You individually, us as a whole. Don't stop believing. That's what I'm calling this. Don't stop believing. Don't harden your heart. Here, listen to God. And this is behind the language of James 1.22, is it not? To be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. You must first Hear it. So, with that point made, we must see the threat of unbelief as real. This is painful for me as I was preparing this. This is painful thinking of all the people that I've seen over the years, people that uh, I've had a hand in baptizing and then they just walk away There's a connection here. There's a connection here. It says, therefore, between chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, that section that we looked at, Moses faithfully led the people of Israel through the wilderness in the Exodus, out of Egypt to the Promised Land. It says, Moses was faithful. Moses was faithful in declaring what God had him say. And Moses' job was to to lead these people out of slavery in Egypt and into, this is an important word, into the land of God's rest. The promised land called Canaan, which was the land promised way back in Genesis to Abraham. His descendants would inherit this land called Canaan. And we're told in verse 8, that the people of Israel hardened their hearts on that day of testing in the wilderness. Now what are we talking about here? What event is Psalm 95 
talking about. Psalm 95 was written at a later date by David. And in it, he mentions two words, which you heard, uh, you heard read out of Exodus 17. Massa and Meribah. And those words correspond with the historical events of Exodus chapter 17, where the people said to Moses, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? If you're a parent and you've ever thought your children were ungrateful, this is the next level up from that. That is next level ingratitude. In verse 7 of Exodus 17, it says, He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And right now, you guys all know two Hebrew words. Massa means testing, and Meribah means quarreling. So that's great. You now know those words and what they mean because it's right there. That's what he named those places. It doesn't exactly sound like Bali or, you know, a nice tropical island. Massa and Meribah, testing and quarreling. And this is the place where God provided water from the rock for the people of Israel. Now, Numbers and Exodus have both got the parallel passages of this event. Exodus 17, especially if you want to go read this on your own time, Exodus 17 has a parallel text in Numbers chapter 20. Okay, so it's the same event. A little bit more detail in the Exodus 17 one. But to really get a fuller picture of this text, you actually have to go right back to Numbers chapter 14. And this helps us see that there were repeated grumblings against God and His providence throughout the time in the wilderness. These events of Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 were not a one-off, these grumblings. In Numbers 14, there's a pronouncement of a curse. And that helps us understand the fullness of the picture here uh, in Hebrews 3. And it's a curse due to unbelief. And we're told that only Joshua and Caleb would enter into the promised land from that generation of adults. I want to I read it out uh, for us because it's, we're told why we should study and understand this historical event. Numbers 14, verses 26 to 34. Verse 26 to 34, it says this, The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in the wilderness, and of all your number, listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years 
and shall suffer for your faithfulness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Wow. That's a divine curse. And this is the reason that a journey uh, that was supposed to only take a few weeks or months took 40 years. You might have seen a, a photo. People did a Google map photo and it's on the internet on Facebook. An atheist mocking Christians. How pathetic it was that it took 40 years and it's got Moses and the people of Israel going around in circles and the promised land should only take two weeks to walk there. Well, this is the reason. God killed off a rebellious generation. That's the reason. He did not allow them in. He didn't allow them to go back, and He didn't allow them in. They were stuck. Whichever way they went, they would be killed. So they had to stay in the wilderness. And we're told that the reason for their grumbling and their rebellion was unbelief. Now this does not mean that every person was unfaithful and rebellious. Because there were some that were not. Moses, Joshua, Caleb. I think 1 Corinthians 10, uh, the beginning part of 1 Corinthians 10, it says that God was unhappy with most of the people. It doesn't say all of the people. But corporately, the people were said to rebel. And the shocking nature of all of this is that they should have been the last people to rebel. They'd seen the plagues in Egypt. They'd seen the miraculous events of the Passover. They'd seen the sea open up and they walk through and then Pharaoh's armies be killed. They'd seen all of that. And here they are complaining. They wanted to go back to what they had before. In the words of one commentator, unbelief passed into action. And that action was running their mouths. And this, really, I mean, the reason I read Numbers 14 is to then realize that this happened before Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 with the incident of the water and the rock and the grumbling in that part of the land. What this is saying is it compounds God's justice. It shows that He was righteous. He told them, if you do this, you're going to be cursed. And yet still, they don't trust Him. Still, they continue to grumble. The writer of Hebrews is using this as a, as, as a metaphor of sorts for us, for the, for the church. And he follows Paul in applying this historical event as an example. In verse 5 of First Corinthians chapter 10, it says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then he says, in verse 6, listen to this, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Why is this example of this historical event being brought to light here in Hebrews 3 as an example to us that we might not desire evil as they did? Let me just say as a polite little point. God doesn't want evil for us. He doesn't. He wants good. And therefore we must listen to Him. And so here then is a, an exhortation to us with this example in mind. 
is an exhortation to us in verses 12 to 14. These are the things that we're actually encouraged to do. Right? I want to read them again. It says this, Take care, brothers, verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort or encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened in the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The statement here about falling away from the living God, it's really a statement of throwing away, violent, throwing away your confidence in God, rejecting Him outright, despising it, what He has for us. Why would we do that? The text tells us that sin is deceitful. It lies. When we hook ourselves onto sinful things that God has declared that we should not have or sure things that we should not do, we're buying into deceit. We're buying into the lie that this thing will be better for us than what God has for us. Imagine being so deceived as to say, I want to go back to Egypt. You know what that means? It's saying, I want to go back to slavery in Egypt because it will be better for me. Sin promises to us joy that it does not ever deliver. Never does. And because faith is the opposite of unbelief, faith is a call to trust God and His goodness and to listen to Him and what He has for us. Now, one of the reasons why people struggle with these warning passages in Hebrews is because they don't really grasp the context of what it's speaking to. I want to say right from the right from the start here that I wholeheartedly hold on to the, the historically reformed Protestant conception that one who has faith will endure to the end and if they don't it was proof that they were never truly saved to begin with okay I agree with that and this text is not actually speaking against that understanding in any way shape or form it's speaking to a people who attempted to put their hope elsewhere. They attempted to reject Christ and put their hope elsewhere, which if they went through with that, would show that they never truly believed. Does that make sense? I'll contrast this some more. This is not a call for us to like navel gaze and, 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 and have an inward focus and worry, is this me? But it's a call to boldly look forward. And this is why there's this exhortation to encourage one another to keep believing and keep trusting in Christ. Hold firm your confidence to the end. It's not a, ultimately a warning call to fear and anxiety. A lot of Christians they, they, they read warnings and they, they just get anxious. 
That's not the point. Not the point. This is an encouragement to continue on in the Christian life and to keep continuing on in the Christian life. This is part of the reason why we say things like repentance from sin, turning from sin, and faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in Him, is the entrance to the Christian life, but along with that is the continued walk. It's the continued Christian life. Repent and believe the gospel, present continuous. Keep believing, keep repenting, keep believing as long as you live until you die or Christ comes again. Not once off, but an ongoing life of this. It is to characterize the whole of it. Now let me apply this to those that get anxious The main type of person that's going to get anxious when they read a warning text like this is someone who's fighting against their sin, who's very aware of their indwelling sin. They're very aware of their lack of their own righteousness. And it causes them to question whether they're truly saved. That ever been you? Lots of nodding heads. You're so aware of your own sin that you wonder, am I really saved? And here's the thing. The fact that you call yourself a Christian and you want to fight against your sin should not be taken as a sign that you're not a Christian, but perhaps we should see that it is a sign that you are a Christian because unbelieving people don't care about their sin that much. And they certainly don't want to look to Christ to get rid of it. Jesus is saying to you, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what he says to such people. Is Hebrews 3 talking about that sort of person? Is it? Please wholeheartedly say with me, no, it's not. Hebrews 3, the difference here is saying to those thinking of giving up and turning away. Not good enough. Jesus is not good enough in finding the hope elsewhere. In this case, and the signs and symbols and shadows and ceremonies of the Old Covenant, which is now obsolete. And this text is saying to such people, and this text is saying over and over, using many, many examples, the writer of Hebrews is saying, there is no hope anywhere else for you. And if you turn away from the living God, you turn away from Christ, you're going to be taking hold of something which is created. Not divinely given to you. You're taking hold of something that is created and you're losing the Creator. You're taking something that is not worthy of worship. To leave the freedom that you have is like going back to Egypt and taking hold of slavery. I don't want anyone to become anxious or massively convicted unless 
massively convicted here in this text, unless you're the kind of person that is considering throwing away Christianity and looking elsewhere, whether it be another religion, whether it be just some form of sinful living, just ultimately living for yourself with you as Lord of your own life. That's the kind of warning this text is against. And so it says, encourage one another to hold firm and sometimes warn those that are being lied to by the deceitfulness of sin. Sometimes such people are in our midst. Seen many. Maybe you're one of those Christians who's had difficult experiences in your life and you feel deserted, you feel abandoned, you feel betrayed by other Christians. Maybe you've just had a really bad church life, been involved in a church split, seen pastoral abuse, who knows, but you hurt, and then you get a deduction, you make a deduction. To quote Ligon Duncan, he says, I've been, left da- I've been let down by the church, I've been let down by Christians, therefore I'm going to leave Jesus. And this text says to us, and chapter 4 is going to say to us, everyone will let you down except Jesus because he is faithful and true to the end and never ever changes. Don't let go of him. Don't stop believing in him. Where do we see, this is a warning passage, so we bring this to a close, where do we see the gospel in this passage? Where is the good news of Jesus in what is ultimately a warning? And the answer I would say is in this concept of rest. They shall not enter my rest, it says in verse 11. God is a God of rest. The good things that God has for His people, not all of them, but the good things, the good end paths, end games, and the land that God has for His people are places of rest. Philip Edgecombe Hughes says, The rest from which Adam and Eve were excluded from was fellowship with God in Eden. The rest forfeited by the rebellious Israelites was that of the promised land. And the rest denied to apostates who fall away from the Christian faith is that of the eternal Sabbath of the new heaven and the new earth. God is a God who brings rest. He created the world in a state of rest with Adam and Eve in that garden, enjoying His presence. He led the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt and He took them to a land of rest. Something very important is going to come up, and I'm going to bring it up more and more as we get into chapter four. 
He gave them laws to keep. And laws did not get the people of Israel into that land of Canaan. It didn't. In fact, their failure to keep the laws what excluded them. It was based on God's goodwill and His promise that let them in. That's why Moses took them to the very edge, but he did not take them in. Moses being typological, synonymous of the law. Moses could not get the people in. He needed the saving work of God. That's why Joshua took them in. Okay, we'll look at that more and more in the future. Jesus Christ kept the law, God's law, perfectly on our behalf. And therefore he was able to enter and bring us in as sons into God's rest. What is this ultimate rest? It says the new creation, the new heaven, and the new earth. Jesus did what we could not do. And therefore, he earned the right to the new creation. That is the message of 2 Corinthians 5, that wonderful uh, passage. That he did what we could not do, and therefore, he earned the right to that new creation, which has in it the wonderful tree of life that was left behind in the garden. Eternal life, eternal rest. Jesus worked so that we may enter God's rest. And all those who trust in Him, He trailblazes the path forward for us and takes us with Him. Our faith binds us to Christ and He has promised that when He returns, we will all be raised from the dead and we will be entering into God's rest with Him. And that is why it says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, we are called to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, because he brings us to God. And our responsibility is to listen to him and do what he says. He is the priest who brings us to God, and he is the apostle who speaks the words of life to us. We must listen to him. And therefore, don't stop believing. There is good news for us, because there is an eternal rest. And we will not fall dead in the wilderness because our Savior holds us fast and will take us in to that promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. I'm going to give the last word to the late Jerry Bridges. God bless him. Let us then turn our attention from our own performance whether it seems good or bad to us, and look to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is God's provision for our sin, not only on the day we trusted Christ for our salvation, but every day of our Christian life. Don't stop believing. Hold firm to Christ. Let's pray.